Good morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Glad to be here and uh, home. I uh, want to come over here and light the Advent wreath again. And um, candles, not the wreath itself. Um, last week, I lit a candle that represents the uh, idea of hope. That, and we, we spent time talking about uh, looking at Christ and thinking about how the promises that Scripture give us uh, are fulfilled in Christ and that He has secured our hope. We specifically looked at the prophecy of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and how he was uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to consider the promises that had been established in the Old Testament and how they were ultimately fulfilled in Christ's coming. This week, I'm going to be lighting the candle for faith. And as I was thinking, um, we, we've sung those, those songs this morning that have been very much directed towards the concept of faith. And when we think about the, the matter of faith, faith is not so much about what we do, but it's about the object. And we're going to expand on that thought this morning. And I specifically was thinking about Hebrews 11.1. One. It talks where it says, now faith is the substance of things, and it ties into hope, that, that the substance of things that have been promised, if you will. And it's the conviction of things that are unseen. Even though we haven't seen Christ, there is a conviction within us to trust Him because of the hope that has been given to us through Scripture and how it constantly fulfilled his promises. And so this morning, we're going to, as we begin to explore this concept of faith, I trust that it's going to encourage you and strengthen you in your own faith and in the, the hope of who we are in Christ and what he has blessed us with. So I, I don't know about you, um, but one of the things that, that has, it strikes me about our culture in, in, in this time that we are walking in, especially this uh, latter part of the, the 20th century and now into the, the 21st century, um, we are seeing this concept of faith get very confusing because of the prosperity gospel primarily. And, and what the prosperity gospel has done with this concept of faith, they have misunderstood and misrepresented the biblical picture of it. And what they've, they've done in that is they've elevated faith and man's faith more so about who we are and what we produce in and of ourselves as apart from the object of our faith. So, like, uh, uh, let me give you an illustration or an example of that. As, as I was thinking through this, one of the things that I specifically thought about is they teach that the necessity of one's faith determines how God would respond to you, okay? So, if you don't, if you need healing and you don't receive healing, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you need wealth or some kind of matter of prosperity and you don't receive that, it's because you don't possess enough faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that sounds, one, convicting, and, and it, but it's also very wrong because it, it puts this pressure on me to say, well, how, how am I doing? And I'm not saying that we don't have responsibility in responding in faith to Christ, but what I'm saying is we've got to do that rightly. And I want to give you an illustration from the scriptures, of, of why faith is not about us. 
okay? That it is not based upon our manufacturing some kind of belief or system or strength. Instead, faith is simply about Christ and his work. If you look over in John chapter 5, and we won't spend a lot of time breaking this down because this is really still just introductory, but I, I want you to listen to this account in John chapter 5. And this is the account of the healing of an uh, invalid man, a man who couldn't walk or had some kind of sickness at the pool of Bethesda. And um, it was uh, in John chapter 1, I, we'll, we'll read this. After there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so, so think about the context of this man having been at the pool of Bethesda Waiting, getting alms and, and begging and, and trying to get help for 38 years. Now, let's pick up there in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So if you remember this, the, the history of this, the pool would stir and the first one into the pool would find healing. Okay, so this man was like, I can't get there in time to find this healing. So in verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that, Sabbath, that day was the Sabbath. So, so this situation, this, this invalid is healed by Jesus. But here's the interesting thing I want you to watch. There's no mention of this man's faith at any point at, at, to this point. Okay, and we're going to watch him come uh, interviewed by the Pharisees as we read further. Verse ten. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, because you would have been doing work." So they were challenging him, but he answered them, "The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk." They asked him, "Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk?" So here's the key question. This man has the opportunity to give a testimony of his faith in Christ for his healing. But let's look at what he says in verse 13. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him stop there. So, so my, my point is this. If the faith and prosperity gospel and the focus on faith was to be about our responsibility in this, that man should never have been healed because he never knew who healed him to start with. It wasn't until Jesus met him later that the man said, oh, now I know. It was not a matter of his faith. It was simply by Jesus' mercy. So, so what we have the responsibility to do then in our culture and context is to understand what is the significance of faith. When we come to this Advent season where we're anticipating the, the, the message and the hope that Christ has promised, where we're expecting something that he is to do for us, what does that faith really uh, mean for us? So, so I want to say this. And I want to go to another passage of Scripture. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Here we are 
in the, the faith chapter. Exactly where I began lighting the candle, talking about faith being the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Later in this same passage, the writer of Hebrews in verse 6 says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists that he re- and that he rewards those who seek him. So, so it's not that we're not to exercise faith. I don't think that's the, the issue. But the issue is this. What do we, how do we rightly exercise faith? What does faith really consist of? So, so that when we uh, respond that, that it, to the Lord, we must recognize that if we don't possess faith and we don't exercise faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, that's different than what the prosperity gospel says. Do you recognize that? They would say faith provides all of these other things for us, where we're saying this. Faith is about a pleasing uh, relationship with the Lord that provides pleasing nature and responsibility and reciprocal relationship to Him. That's that's a distinction there. So how do we come to this understanding of faith? Well, I I think this is a, a key issue, that the Holy Spirit has to be the one who reveals the things of Scripture so that when we hear and understand the truth, that we respond to that truth with belief that the evidence of those things that He has revealed make a difference to us, and that they change us. So, Perry, you quoted from Spurgeon. That was a great quote, by the way. Most of the things he says are really great. Um, I, I also was reading Spurgeon on this, and I love how he illustrates this. So I want to read this to you. When a man believes a bank to be safe, he'll put his money into it if he has a need to do so. When a man believes in the honesty of another, the practical issue of it is he takes this friend's word and he trusts him. And he goes on to say, I believe in the truthfulness of God, in the truthfulness of certain narratives given by the four evangelists. So he's saying, Spurgeon's saying, I believe the Gospels. I believe that the Holy Spirit has inspired these truths, and I am convinced that they are are the truth. He says further, I believe that Christ was born at Bethlehem. I I love that. I latched on to that because of the Advent season. We're getting ready to celebrate the coming of Christ on on December 25th, where we believe that and know that Scripture has revealed that he came and was born at Bethlehem. He goes on, Spurgeon goes on to say that he was the son of God and that he lived and died as the savior of men. I believe that his sufferings were expiatory, that he suffered in the stead of sinners to make recompense to the justice of God for our sins. And believing has, I trust my soul upon his sacrifice. I rest on it and that faith saves me. Do you hear the the difference? He's saying all of these things about Christ that have been revealed in Scripture, I trust them to be true. And and I rest upon them, not because of anything that I've done, but because of the truth itself, and they are dependable truths. So, when we think about faith, what what should be our response to the, the, the matter of faith? And how does faith, if we say, like, and I love that illustration, if I believe a bank is trustworthy, what am I going to do? I'm going to put my money in it, right? If we thought a bank was not going to be trustworthy and handle our finances well, would we put our money in it? The answer would be no. 
right? So, so what we want to do is we want to say if faith is about the object because we studied the object and we know it to be true, then we have a responsibility to act rightly. So what, what do we read in James? A couple, just one book over, a couple pages over in your Bible. Look at James 2, verse 17. And I hope what you're seeing is this thread of how faith is woven through Scripture, but faith in Scripture clearly identifies how we hold to the object, but then we respond according to our, uh, who that object is. So in James 2.17, we read this. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, so what is faith that is proper sees or identifies the object of faith and responds in obedience. So, I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Most of the world looks at life in general and says there's some aspect of morality that we ought to try to achieve. How we treat one another is essential. And so there's this striving to be the best that we can. Now, I think the, the problem for us is this. There's not a good standard that the world holds to. So, so that target, if you will, of morality is always different according to the world's standards. So, so we don't meet the same one. And so morality is actually defined as a whole and culture in a variety of ways. And so we continually miss that mark, so to speak, and one group's morality or our point of morality is different from another. That's why Scripture has to be and, and provides a standard that is consistent. And who Christ is, above all, provides the right, perfect point of morality. You say, how does he do that? What, what we're longing for in our attempt to be moral people Christ has perfectly fulfilled because he was sinless, because he provided the perfect sacrifice on our behalf that our morality doesn't have to stand in any place as, as, uh, as a key. I tell you what, Katie, can you throw that, that passage of um, that quote by Spurgeon back up? Because I want you to see what, what he said here. He says, my hope lives not because uh, I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. Now listen to this. My trust is not that I am holy, I'm moral, but that being unholy, He is my righteousness. His morality has fulfilled everything. You, you, you see why that quote from, that Perry put up earlier just registered in my mind? Because I knew where I was going this morning. And, and it's about Christ. Let's keep going. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, the perfect sacrifice, in what He has done, in His perfect obedience, and what He is now doing for me, that He is right now in heaven mediating on my behalf, mediating on your behalf, continuing to say, their sin is atoned for, it is expiated, I, I am the righteous one, and, and they've trusted me as the object of their faith. They can be right because of my perfection, because of my holiness, because I hit the target of perfection. 
And that's what we're celebrating in this Advent season is the perfection of who Christ is. Okay, thanks so much. See, so we've all, throughout all history, every person has been longing for that perfect obedience. We can't do it on our own. It's only fulfilled in Christ. So look at Philippians 2. Turn back just a couple of books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if that helps you find it a little bit. I'll give you just a second to get there. See, I think further Paul gives in this passage in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he gives us an idea of how faith is rightly worked out. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so here's the point, is we have a responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not that, this, that we're removed from that and we just trust Christ, but we continue to obey and work out our faith, that salvation that has been accomplished by Christ as we continue to relate to him. So I, I love this, and, and I want you to, to mark this in, in, in this thought around Philippians 2.13 um, right here. It said, he says, you're to work it out for it is God who works in you. It's a collaborative, synergistic effort. Does that make sense? That it's not just me doing this on my own. I'm not mustering my faith because it is God who also is working in me. Now listen to, to this because I think this will help us understand it. C.S. Lewis gave this illustration um, in Mere Christianity. He said, you see, we are now trying to understand and to separate into watertight compartments what exactly God does and what man does when God and man are working together. Here's the, the, the struggle. If we look at us working out our salvation, that we have a responsibility in faith, but it's also who, God who works it out in us, how do the two of us relate? And he's saying the tendency is to get these aspects of who we are in these watertight, separated compartments. But this is what, where he comes in and he, he makes this really clear. He says, of course, we begin thinking is like two men working together. So that you can say, he did this bit and I did that bit. But this way of thinking breaks down. God is not like that. Here's the key and why. He says, God is inside you as well as outside. Even if you couldn't understand who did what, I do not think that human language could properly express it. I think that's a good way to look at this. When we respond to, to the gospel message, trusting in Christ as our Savior, exercising that faith in the truth of the message that the Holy Spirit has brought to light through scriptures. We respond and the Holy Spirit indwells us, and then that's that. It's not watertight separate anymore between us and God. There is a collaborative difference in who we are because we're indwelt, we're by the Holy Spirit. So it is us responding, but it's also God working in and through us to work out as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's good news for us. So let me give you a couple implications of this. First of all, you know, I, wanna, I want us to think through this. What does genuine faith look like in this day and age? If the world and, and there's false teachers that are corrupting that notion... What does it look like for us? Well, I would say this. It's, it's to our wisdom 
not to think so much about our faith as it is to our wisdom to think about the object of our faith. Does that make sense? Don't, don't put the pressure on what do I know. Put the pressure on how do I know Christ. Not, not who am I in, th- in my thinking, but what do the scriptures say and let me pursue an understanding and a relationship about Jesus. Let me, let me give you a little better statement of that. Proper faith looks into the matter of our faith, not into my faith. We are to believe in Jesus. The point then is for us to think more of him than our thoughts themselves. Does that make sense? Think more of Jesus than our thoughts themselves. A lot of times we get caught up in that cycle. What do I think about all this stuff? No, no, no. What do the scriptures say? Who is Jesus? It's going back to more and more and more of him. So how do we do that? Well, turn over to Romans 10. Verse 17. Simple verse. You'll be most likely really familiar with it. Romans 10, 17. Says this. Give you a second to get there. Romans 10, 17. And it's underlined in my Bible. I'd encourage you to underline it in yours. So faith. Now there's our key for the morning. So faith comes how? From thinking about it? From thinking about it? No. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's really simple. If we want faith to be strengthened, if, if we want faith fulfilled in, in that sense, as we're working out our salvation, what we do is we focus on who Christ is as he is revealed in the word of God. So, so what does that mean practically for us? Because I said this is practical implications, Right? Well, I would say it's two things. One, be in the Word. Be people of the Word. Spend time in your devotions on a daily basis, getting into the Word. Spend time not just doing devotional things, but studying the Word of God so that you might know Christ. Because He is the one who is the perfect object of our faith. I'm so looking forward to what Steve is going to be sharing in our time of communion in just a minute because he's going to be talking about how Christ is the fulfillment and how faith has connected from the Old Testament to the New Testament and Christ is perfect in that. So be people of the Word so, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Second of all, this is where it gets a little more challenging. Let's be people who speak the word of God to one another. That, that sounds like a very simple statement. But, but immediately, what I started thinking about in my mind as I say that this morning is how I've buzzed around this building with you guys, several of you guys this morning. And the truth is, little of my conversation was about the word of God. I've missed opportunities. How are we speaking the Word of God to one another. I, I'll share this with you really quickly. Christian, you, many of you know, my son, Christian, he's moved to uh, Washington State, not in, up in the liberal part, so he's actually in a little conservative part down the central, south central part. Um, but it's interesting. Because of where... Y'all laughing because I said liberal part? Something else? 
Okay. There is a conservative part. It's actually, it's, I know, it's, it's, it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Um, anyhow, Christian is there. One of the things that the state governor has uh, uh, recommended and re- actually required is when churches gather in worship. Now, and y'all, y'all need to hear this, okay? Everyone has to wear masks, and, and that's not the biggest deal to me. But if, let's, let's imagine that for just a minute. Everybody in here is wearing masks. When it comes time to worship, no one can sing, even though you're wearing masks. On the stage, there can only be one person, and they're allowed to sing in the, the service. They can't even have two people. Like, so last week we had Perry here and Katie here, six foot distance. They're married, they couldn't sing at the same time. They can't be in an ensemble. There's no choir. They cannot even have a band. So our drummer who sits in a drum cage and typically wears a mask, or David over here six feet distance that that plays keys with a mask, could not support Perry as a singer. It's one person in the whole worship service that's allowed to sing. And folks, we're commanded in Scripture to sing spiritual songs and hymns to one another. I'm sorry. There's things that we need to be aware of that we are privileged with religious freedom in our nation to do. And we need to be people that, that, that speak the truth of Scripture to one another freely. And, and that's part of why I think it's important for us to sing together. Because there is an aspect of singing the truth of Scripture that encourages us rightly according to the principles of Scripture. And I'm just being transparent here. I'm thankful that I'm not a pastor in Washington State right now because my convictions would demand and require me to do something different in worship. And I'd probably be criticized or in trouble. Now, here's the the bottom line of this. Where we still have the freedoms in Tennessee. Thankfully, Governor Lee is very conservative and a believer, and he's allowed us the freedoms to do what we're doing in worship. We need to take advantage of that. And we need to continue to make sure that we are speaking Scripture to one another because we, we don't have to worry about it at this point. And folks, I've said this over and over again. I feel like there's a, about to be criticism and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, persecution, that's it, that's coming our way. And there's going to be a day where we're not going to be able to do these things very easily. It's happening. So what we have a practical responsibility to do is to respond appropriately to who we are in Christ and speak the word of truth and the scriptures to one another, exercising our faith in Christ, making the most of Him. So I want to encourage us. Don't just take my word this morning. That's who we're called to be according to the Scripture. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Let us share that boldly. Because ultimately, and and Perry, I love the fact that you've included this song uh, based on John 3.16, 
in, in our Christmas season worship because Christ is the hope, that He is the Son who is born and has sacrificed to give us eternal life, that whoever believes in Him would not die but would have eternal life. And that's our hope. That's the message of, of the gospel that by which everyone should trust and put their faith in Christ because of what He's done. The only way people will know that is for us to share, for them to hear that truth, for us to be encouraged with those things. So let's pray, and then we're going to invite the kids to come up. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Lord, let us be a people who rightly speak the word of truth, that rightly study the word of truth, that, that rightly focus on Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, so that, one, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and two, we are promoting the gospel. So, Father, I pray that you give us boldness. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that we would make the most of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.